Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is David Azarad. I'm the director of the Simon Center for Principles and Politics and the AWC Family Foundation here at the Heritage Foundation. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this lecture on Antifa. The left, as you well know, has long been enamored with political violence. If you look at the three greatest leftist revolutions of all time, they were all soaked in blood. The French, the Russian, and then the one that outed them all, Mao's Cultural Revolution. Here in America, I think we remember that the 1960s were not all peace and love, sit-ins, and music festivals. We also had to deal with the Weather Underground, radical elements of the SDS, the Black Panthers, and later the Symbionis Liberation Army, who killed and bombed in the name of overthrowing the imperialist American regime. Meanwhile, they were given cover by prominent leftist intellectuals who justified the bloodshed. Herbert Marcuse, a.k.a. the father of the new left, drew a distinction which one finds to this day on the left between the violence of the oppressors and the violence of the oppressed. The oppressed, he thought, had no choice but to resort to violence to resist the tyranny of the American regime. Today, a far-left revolutionary movement calling itself Antifa has organized mass violence in the streets of American cities. Infamous for dressing head to toe in black, Antifa militants organized to destroy property, beat up people, and intimidate their opposition into silence, all of course in the name of opposing fascism. And despite their well-documented track record of violence, they still find support on the left and their leaders continue to skirt justice. Now details on the size and structure of the organization are difficult to discern. But much of what we know about them, we know thanks to the intrepid reporting of Andy No. Andy has been covering Antifa since they burst onto the national scene in 2017. He is the editor-at-large of the Post-Millennial and has been published in the Wall Street Journal, National Review, and the New York Post. He was formerly on the editorial team of Quillette magazine. In June, Andy was assaulted and robbed by a violent Antifa mob during a protest in Portland, Oregon. He was hospitalized with a traumatic brain injury following the, the incident. Police, alas, have made no arrest in connection with the beating, even though at least one of the assailants was caught on camera without a mask. Please join me in welcoming Andy No. Okay. 
Hi, everyone. Well, first, thanks so much for being here. And um, I want to take this opportunity to thank Heritage Foundation for inviting me and giving me the chance to speak with you all. Um, my name is Andy Ngo. Um, but before I began talking about Antifa, which is why you're all here, um, I'm going to tell you about the lives of two people that you've never heard of, but it's relevant to the story. On the left is a photo of a young woman named Thuik Mai, and on the right, the man is Wukbin. Thuik Mai came from a middle-class, nouveau riche family on the southeastern coast of the former South Vietnam. Her parents were entrepreneurs. They had started and grew a successful jewelry business. Thuik Mai However, I had no interest in learning the trade of the family business. She, excel she excelled in academic studies. She loved history, literature, and music in particular. And she was one of the few girls to learn how to play the mandolin. She wanted to be part of the first generation of women to go to university in her country. Wukbin, on the other side, was born into a poor family. His mother was a widow, and he never knew his father, who died when he was a young child. He was educated to only around 15 years old because he had to start working to help support his family. As a young adult, he became an entry-level police officer in a small town also on the southeastern coast of South Vietnam. Both their lives were turned completely upside down after the fall of Saigon in 19, 1975, which reunited North and South Vietnam into one communist state. The Workers' Revolution won. Both Duik Mai and Wukbin were sent to prison camps, but for entirely different reasons. For Duik Mai, it was because her family were deemed bourgeois as punishment for allegedly profiting off the back of Vietnamese workers. Their home and business were confiscated. The entire family, including her very young siblings, were sent to a labor camp. She still remembers how the dirt floor the cell the family were kept in had fire ants. One crawled into the ear of her youngest brother. Wukbin was punished for allegedly collaborating with the former regime. Why? Well, he worked as law enforcement. He was sent to work in the fields in a camp in a jungle. He watched a fellow prisoner catch and eat a spider out of hunger and desperation. He's completely cut off from his family and the outside world during this time. Like hundreds of thousands of other Vietnamese, after 1975, they were sent to re-education camps on the Maoist belief that hard labor and re-education can reform counter-revolutionaries into becoming good socialist citizens. Both experienced unprecedented suffering and poverty after their time in the camps. They fled along with tens of thousands of others on small boats off the southern coast of Vietnam in the late 70s. Both of them eventually met one another on a refugee camp in Indonesia. Some years later, after settling in Portland, Oregon, they had a son. And at this point, you can probably figure out that I'm talking about my parents. And the irony here is that 
a strain of the far-left revolutionary ideology, my parents risked life and limb to escape and end up confronting their son years later in their adopted home in the United States. Okay, that was a bit of a long introduction, but my family's background very much informs who I am today. Um, most of you in this room, if you have heard of me, I assume, have only heard of me in the past few months because of what happened in downtown Portland when I was beaten and robbed. But I'm going to step back a little bit and tell you how I got into reporting on Antifa. Um, it really started in 2016. At that time, I was a graduate student at Portland State University, and I served on the editorial team of the student paper. One of the beats I covered at that time was politics. And I remember in 2016, we were told by those in the media, pundits, commentators, journalists, that when Hillary Clinton inevitably wins in November, that Republicans, Trump supporters, the right wing would res respond violently uh, by taking to the streets. And I think that was summed up in a magazine cover for The Week magazine, which came out just at the end of October. So this cover ended up being pretty prescient in Portland, except it had the identity of the people wrong. In Portland, we had days of violent rioting after the election results were announced. And that was the first time that I came face to face with this movement called, with militants who are part of this movement called Antifa. I remember seeing people dressed head to toe in black, wearing masks, running around the city of Portland in marauding gangs, carrying melee weapons, smashing up property, and starting fires on the streets. Since 2016, there's been around two dozen violent protests or riots just in the Portland area alone involving Antifa. Other US cities have been afflicted by political violence as well. Berkeley, New York, Philadelphia, and DC, among others. Similar violence has also broken out in parts of Canada. Antifa is pretty recognized because of their uniform. This is called Black Block. It's not just a uniform, it's also the tactics that come with it. So in addition to all dressing the same in black, they will cover their face either with some type of impromptu mask. It could be a t-shirt, it can be an actual mask or a helmet. And they do that so that some of their fellow comrades who choose to be violent or commit criminal activities can easily melt back into the crowd and it makes it pretty much impossible for you to identify somebody. They hit you and then they run back in and everybody looks the same. And it also prevents law enforcement from apprehending suspects as well. I say that violence is a feature, not a bug of Antifa. Um, this is just a sample of some of the weapons that were confiscated by the Portland police in one riot in June 2017. And a lot of the violence is actually quite medieval. Um, they use weapons such as blades, chains, bike locks, bricks, you name it, hammers. But aside from all this violence, what is this group and what do they really want? First of all, 
Antifa is a far-left ideology and movement which brings together radical communists and anarchists. They're seeking a revolution that would result in communism, but they believe that they can do it and secure a communist society without the national borders, law enforcement, the military, or state authoritarianism that has represented other communist revolutions. They want to create communities that can operate autonomously and independently of a government. Members would, quote-unquote, protect and provide for one another. It's a utopian dream, or dystopian, um, but that hasn't stopped them from trying. You can look at places like Portland where they have a lot of sway and cultural influence, where they try to literally make Antifa no-go zones for journalists, for law enforcement, for law-abiding citizens driving on the street. They absolutely reject hierarchies, so it's not accurate to really identify them as having any one leader or leaders. And it's a misconception to think of Antifa as a single organization. They're made up of many, many groups, and a lot of them don't even have Antifa in the name. So while there are groups like Rose City Antifa or Emerald City Antifa, Portland and Seattle, um, there's groups like By Any Means Necessary in California, there's Smash Racism DC, which was a group that showed up at Tucker Carlson's house, there's Portland's Resistance, so on and so forth. So who is in Antifa? Well, there's no formal membership, but arrests provide a, one set of data for us to look at who's behind the mask of some of these mass Antifa riots. Like other extremist movements, its ideologues are mostly male and young. And while claiming to operate on a mandate of diversity, they're overwhelmingly white. Anecdotally, a disproportionate number also identify as queer, trans, and or non-binary. So what's in the name? Antifa ostensibly means anti-fascist, right? It's all doublespeak and euphemism. Anti-fascism, when they say it, really just means that they're against capitalism and liberalism. They view fascism as a part of the evolution of a capitalist society and liberalism as a system that allows fascism to grow. Hence, that's why they particularly target symbols of the U.S., like flags. They view this country as a bulwark of fascism. And when they say they only participate in self-defense, what that means is offensive and premeditated violence against their ideological opponents because opposing speech, words, and ideas in their mind is tantamount to violence and can be responded with violence. Historian Norman Davies points out that anti-fascism originated as an ideological construct of Soviet propaganda. He says it doesn't have a coherent political ideology on its own. Instead, it's used to define whatever its adherents happen to oppose. You see it reflected today when Antifa supporters or ideologues spiritually say that if you're against them, you're pro-fascism. What are the origins of Antifa? Antifa models its tactics and propaganda on the Antifascistische Aktion, which was a paramilitary type group created by the German Communist Party in 1932. This paramilitary was created to violently oppose the Social Democrats as well as the Nazis. 
sort of for a bit of background context at this time, the state institutions of the Weimar Republic were weak and unstable, and Antifa Axion was one of the paramilitaries which proliferated in the context, in this context of political unrest and economic instability. After World War II ended, the Antifa ideology was absorbed into the state ideology and rhetoric of East Germany. For example, the Berlin Wall was called the Antifaschistischer Schutzwall, or Antifascist Defense Barrier. Anti Antifa ideologues never tell you that East Germany with the Stasi is what an Antifa state can look like. Modern Antifa groups would emerge in the 70s in the Anglosphere, took particular root in the British punk scene in opposition to the growth of racist far-right skinheads. The subculture would cross over the Atlantic and forms the basis of American Antifa. So how did American Antifa seem to explode into the American conscious in just the past few years? They're all over the media now, and most people who have never heard of them before 2016 now are familiar with the name. Well, it started because the election of Trump was a huge propaganda and recruitment win for them. They've been around for a long time, for decades, but their previous recruitment tactics were really limited to tabling, zines, newspapers, and periodicals. They really failed to attract new recruits. The only people who were coming in to support them were those who were already inclined to support the radical agenda. But the hashtag resistance, which intentionally uses language of war, mainstreamed militant opposition to the right with the help of media and cultural institutions. Around-the-clock media coverage of small, fringe, alt-right groups and figures exaggerated their influence and threat, thus creating a demand for Antifa. What do Antifa groups do? Well, one thing is that they're very good at doxing. Doxing is where you find out personal information about somebody, such as their address or where they work, their phone number, et cetera, and release it to the public. So they spend huge resources on reconnaissance and espionage. They're essentially a scaled-down and less organized version of the Stasi. And they've been given free reign on the major social media platforms to do this. They have dedicated photographers, videographers, who document people they're suspicious of. If they choose to target a particular individual, they'll release that, that person's address or workplace online. They use a lot of propaganda as well. Like a gang, they have symbols and signs that they've co-opted to using graffiti tagging around parts of a city. These two pictures were taken in Portland, but in downtown in particular, these type of symbols are quite ubiquitous. They also use stickers with their branding. And what they also really ex excel at is intimidation and violence, as I've said before. In my own case, they've released my family's address online and have showed up to my home. They've attacked me physically on multiple sorry, occasions. 
And I agree with the Department of Homeland Security, who describes some of Antifa's actions as domestic terrorist violence, according to a report in Political. Most of their organizing is done clandestinely through encrypted chat rooms on Signal or Telegram, similar to what ISIS and other terrorists use. The American version of Antifa is a bit different from its European cousins. For one, it's merged its ideology with intersectionality, and intersectionality to some is basically the underpinning ideology of the oppression Olympics, apparently. The more oppression variables you hold, the more, the more you are able to share and see truth. So their discourses now are not so much about class solidarity, but rather over issues of race, gender, and sexual orientation. And this affects the issues they focus on. The take on Black Lives Matter as a cause, decolonization, abolishing border enforcement. But what makes American Antifa more powerful and dangerous? Well, in my opinion, while their violent tactics are unpalatable for most, What's happening is that their ideology is being absorbed, mainstreamed, and incorporated by more and more politicians and figures in the media. A few slides ago, I showed two magazine covers from the main news magazines in Germany, and you can see that they have no issue using Nazi imagery to refer to our president. And just recently, former presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke referred to the current administration, compare the current administration to the Third Reich. You can just see the talking points of politicians like AOC, for example, her line about the concentration camps on our border, which, by the way, was the same line that was used in the manifesto of an Antifa militant named Willem van Spronsen, who in July of this year firebombed the ICE facility in Tacoma, Washington. He came armed with a rifle, used Molotov cocktails to stop fires, and according to police, attempted to ignite the 500-gallon propane tank that was attached to the facility. He was killed in the process by police. So, and another thing that's been mainstreamed through Antifa ideology is the hatred of law enforcement hatred of national sovereignty. These aren't even really controversial points to hold on the left anymore. In day in and day out, many journalists and media outlets have acted as an auxiliary brigade for Antifa, put out fluff pieces on them, defame those who dare to speak out, and brainwash the public into believing that Antifa militants are actually heroic anti-fascists. So what are some possible solutions to this issue of far-left extremism in the United States. It's actually very simple. First, just give law enforcement the tools and resources to enforce the law. Where they've been able to do that, like DC, Antifa's criminal activities have been stopped or curtailed. For an, for an opposite example, look to Portland, where the mayor, who also doubles as our police commissioner, doesn't seem to want to upset Antifa. Empower politicians and heads of law enforcement to feel safe to speak out against Antifa and far-left violent extremism. No similar compunction exists when it comes to calling out and stopping far-right extremism. Rightly so, by the way. 
And in my, in, in my opinion, I think attempts should be made to curtail mask wearing by protesters at unpermitted rallies. What happens when you have a group of people together who are wearing masks is that they feel emboldened to do things they would not normally do if their identities were exposed. I'm going to circle back a bit to what something I said in the beginning. So most of you here, I assume, have heard of me only because of the publicity around the beating and robbery that happened on the 29th of June. Um, I'm going to relive that moment just a little bit and share again what happened. So Portland has had about around two dozen violent protests slash riots. This day should have been just like another normal day that I cover. I had a new GoPro that I was very excited to use. There were around 400 people marching in downtown against the Proud Boys and another men's rights activist group. Together, the right-wingers were maybe around 20 people they had 400 come up to oppose them. Right outside of the Justice Center, which is the building that houses uh, courtrooms, the Central Police Precinct, the Sheriff's Office, they were chanting, no hate, no fear. And I was walking along with them, and I was trying to walk to the front so I could get a wide-angle shot of the very front of the crowd as they're walking towards me. But before I got there, and while still hearing them chant, no hate, no fear, someone or something hit me really hard on the back of my head and it knocked me forward. I'm a very passive person. I've never been in a fight. I wasn't even sure what had happened. I actually thought maybe somebody accidentally tripped into me. But before I had a chance to turn around and see what happened, the punches came from every direction. And all I saw was just a sea of black and fists. And they were wearing gloves that had hardened fiberglass material on it. So it was like getting hit with bricks repeatedly. The assault was caught partially on camera and it lasted for seconds, but by the time it was over I was dazed, I was bloodied, and I just kept thinking, where are the police? I could still see the Justice Center, but no justice, just anarchy and chaos. And uh, as I tried to stumble away, next came this hailstorm of so-called uh, milkshakes and eggs and other hard objects, and everybody was laughing and cheering. So. After beating me, that wasn't enough. They needed to humiliate me with all of this. Um, it's been over four months since the 29th of June, and no one has been arrested still. That's the unfortunate reality of where I find myself today. But my quest and pursuit for justice isn't over. And I thank you all for coming here and giving me the opportunity to speak with you and to share my story. And uh, that's my contact info if you want to reach out to me. There's also a legal fund that's been set up. And I look forward to your questions. This gentleman here, has, if you can wait for the microphone, identify yourself and keep the question brief, please. Yeah, my name is Joel Mandelman. I'm an attorney here in Washington. Really, two-part question. Have you filed formal request with the Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney's Office, to investigate if there is a conspiracy between these gangsters and the Portland city government, the Portland police, the Portland district attorney, to not 
prosecute? And secondly, are you aware, because we've been urging this, that are you aware of any formal investigation undertaken by the Civil Rights or Criminal Division of the Justice Department or the U.S. Attorney in Portland into whether or not there is a conspiracy between these gangsters and the Portland police and the Portland district attorney and the Portland mayor? First, I'm not aware of any federal investigations into Antifa, but I've been speaking out a lot in the months since the beating to urge for that to happen because the issues that are happening, are it's really too big for any local jurisdiction to deal with. These people who are involved in one chapter frequently would travel to other cities in the region to commit and support uh, violence uh, with their comrades. So uh, this needs uh, the federal authorities to step in to help investigate. Um, as for your first question, um, that's not something that uh, has been done yet so far. My counsel and I have been wanting to give the Portland police the opportunity to actually investigate what happened and not push them in any direction that or potentially uh, make that investigation process more difficult for them. Um, I know these things can take a long time. Um, it's frustrating that four and a half months out from what happened, even with names that have been given, nothing's happened. Um, so hopefully, uh, if it's appropriate, maybe the next step is to formally reach out. Hello, I'm Thomas Wright of Metropolitan Washington Mensa, and on behalf of my friend Joan, I'm asking the question, is there any known connection between Antifa and the DNC? Mm. Yeah, so uh, one of my annoyances with uh, some on the right is they try very hard to link um, Antifa to the Democrats. I think what some many people aren't aware of is that Antifa as a movement ideology rejects the concept of political parties. They're, they want anarchy. So the Democrats are not their friends by any means. However, that doesn't mean they don't use the Democrats to further their agenda. And what I'm seeing in some places is that there's a reluctance for some mainstream politicians on the left to be vocally critical of Antifa. Unfortunately, um, I think through the media have fooled a lot of people until thinking that this movement are made up of, of basically folk heroes and it could be politically costly for Democrat politicians to come out against them. More recently, I've been troubled by some things I've seen in Portland. For example, there was an Antifa, a violent Antifa extremist who was killed recently in Portland under mysterious circumstances. And various Antifa groups locally have been urging their comrades to delete any communications they've had with this dead man and to not cooperate with, quote, the pigs in their case. I thought it was odd that when his death was announced, the mayor, Ted Wheeler, came out and issued his basically his condolences and shock over what happened. He doesn't voice that normally for law-abiding citizens who pass away. Um, on top of that, uh, in response to this militant's death, because it happened right outside of the Democrat headquarters in Portland, um, his fellow comrades chose to 
honor him by turning the building into a so-called memorial by vandalizing it with messages calling for police to be killed. And the local Democrats there offered support for that and said they wanted to give them a space to mourn. Now, if, let's say, the situation was reversed, right? A, right-wing, a known right-wing extremist was killed coincidentally in front of a Republican headquarters, and, some re- and the response by those in the Republican Party is to allow that to happen and to have violent extremist messages up and plastered for everyone to see for days and days, like, I think there would be an outcry. So um, I'm troubled by the developments we're seeing. My name is B.J. Dobsky. I'm a professor from Assumption College. Uh, Our moderator's introduction stressed uh, one of the defining elements of uh, the the blood-soaked revolutions of the left, and that is that they have their roots in and are frequently justified by academics, uh, public intellectuals, and philosophers. In your investigation of Antifa, how um, do they draw inspiration from particular intellectuals, or how much might one attribute their lawlessness to what's going on within the American Academy? Hmm. Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about because um, Antifa, the Black Bloc militants, some of them will embed themselves in student organized protests. And this is part of the larger phenomenon of not as radical leftists who are organizing some protests, but there's this extremist element who comes in and there's no effort to expunge that or push that out. Um, As far as for like ideologues or thinkers that they look to, there's a lot of literature that they have. They um, have it in their zines and their um, publication leaflets, booklets that they give out or provide for uh, or sell for very cheap at anarchist uh, either bookstores or events and fairs. And um, a lot of that is more theoretical. Some of the literature is also very extreme. I would call out, um, I would say, promotes terroristic actions. Um, the connection of, to that in universities is that I just see, I see Antifa militantism as the natural consequence on the same ideological conveyor belt of, of all of this. I think it's basically, in my view, the, the armed wing of those who want to enforce political correctness. Hello, um, my name is Doug Blair. I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. I'm actually from Portland as well. So um, my question is, there have been some cracks in support for Antifa. There was an interview that Ted Wheeler gave recently, a couple months ago, where he said, if you guys stopped coming and protesting, the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer would stop coming too. And Chief Outlaw has been very vocal, obviously, about that she really doesn't like these protesters and that they're causing a problem. Are we approaching a critical mass where even the sort of people who would support 
these organizations are now getting kind of fed up with the violence and the destruction of property that accompanies these protests? It's been my experience that Antifa militants really, it's very important that they control the narrative. That's why they vet media who they were allowed to be near them or by them, and those that they are suspicious of or dislike, they will harass or assault. And I don't know if I can attribute this to me, but it does seem like in the past four months or so that the narrative chokehold on Antifa being just anti-fascists who are opposing the far right, that is showing signs of cracking. Um, one of the things I saw that surprised me actually is that, so the Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, a year ago had tweeted out a photo of himself holding uh, the Antifa handbook, which is written by an Antifa ideologue, an academic named Mark Bray, and he wrote something along the lines of, this book strikes fear into the heart of Donald Trump. And he kept that up for a year until the day after my beating and assault, and he deleted it. That shows me something's happening. And since then, other politicians may be recognizing that even if they're not going to be overtly critical of Antifa, they're going to keep them as at an arm's length. So uh, it's really critical that journalists, independent journalists, and mainstream media continue to treat Antifa with the, the same way that they would investigate far-right extremism. I think one of the uh, red herrings that's thrown out is that people will say, well, uh, Antifa hasn't killed anybody, and they'll use that as sort of a way to um, make, make excuses for them. And, you know, one metric of measuring violent extremism is to see how deadly it is, which so far right is very deadly. Um, but that's not the only metric. You can do a lot of damage to individuals, to property, to institutions without killing a single person. Uh, you know, I included the photos of the weapons that were confiscated because you'll notice that in that there weren't any firearms, no rifles, etc. The weapons I used not to kill, but to, to maim and to injure. And so that, in, just because there hasn't been a death doesn't mean that you ignore it, right? And now, I'm also not sure if we can even say that there's been no deaths affiliated to Antifa. I think the fact that Willem van Spronsen was killed in the process of his attack, I think, counts as a, uh, an Antifa-related death. Um, the Dayton, Ohio shooter, Connor Betts, who killed nine people, didn't leave behind a manifesto as El Paso shooter did. But what we do know of his views is his long and extensive social media posts which includes support for Antifa. According to some reports, he was part of Black Bloc, at least at one event. So he was a strong Antifa ideologue. Uh, it remains to be seen if that had anything to do with motivating his um, mass shooting. But, um, yeah, we're at a point now where the narrative on them is, is shifting, and they're also becoming deadlier, in my opinion. James Stockdale, uh, Pacific Northwest native. Um, you alluded to both Vietnam and Germany where anti-fascist action 
um, undertook the typical communist route of discredit the state, disempower the state, and become the state. And um, in your coverage of the tepid response at best to the vandalization of Portland Democrats' office, it appears that it works. Um, how do you think we as the right can be working to sever Antifa from institutional enablement? Mm. Well, I mean, you know, the messaging from the right has been pretty clear and unan unanimously condemning him. I think what has to happen is that it's about introspection that needs to happen on the left. Like, are we willing to embrace violent extremists who happen to have some overlapping goals or we may have similar ideological enemies. It's to me, I think the 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 next step is really placed on um, on mainstream Democrats. You know, after what happened to to me, the first politician to speak out uh, as a Dem Democrats was uh, Andrew Yang and he un unequivocally condemns what happened to me. I greatly appreciated that. Next was Eric Swalwell, who condemned it, but also made sure that he let it be known that he disagreed with me, which I still respect a lot. Uh, the others weren't willing to do it. So um, when Joe Biden was questioned by the New York Post, he his office did give a statement that condemns political violence, but the others were silent. So um, I'm not sure what more the right can really do. I think uh, what it's been doing is good, but I don't... The other thing is it's dangerous to turn uh, opposition to Antifa into just like a partisan tool because um, it's, it's extremism that like rises above partisan politics. And, um, you know, the right, I think, um, when it's had its issues with extremists trying to embed itself within mainstream politics, you know, those who took the steps to censure and to distance themselves, like, that was right. When it comes now, it's time for those on the left to do that. Um, I think we need to hold accountable the rhetoric of politicians like AOC and Ilhan Omar, Ilhan Omar who keep so casually using language that alludes to uh, the Holocaust. You know, I think... Um, yeah. Hi, Andy. Thanks for being here today. Um, I'm from Canada, and the issue there, the Black Bloc have, for the last decade, run rampant uh, the G20 meetings, the G7s. Why haven't federal authorities called them a terrorist organization and tried to uh, at least not let them publicly, you know, wear balaclavas and, and operate, you know, the way they do? So in the U.S., like, there's been all this grandstanding talking about declaring Antifa or ex-group domestic terrorists, I mean, that's kind of, it's in the end kind of meaningless because like of the free speech protections, protections in the U.S. allowed, allow people to uh, affiliate with radical and extreme ideologies, unlike in Western Europe, which they can prescribe uh, or ban uh, certain groups, right? In the U.S., they don't do that. So that's why the KKK can exist. There are various neo-Nazi groups that can exist. So what needs to happen is 
I mean, what makes it hard for law enforcement then is you have to look at criminal activities of individuals. And with Antifa, we don't know the individuals because it's an anonymous movement. Um, I'm not sure about the laws in Canada, but I think, you know, one of the solutions I offered, I think, is to look at legislation uh, locally that would bar mask wearing at unpermitted protests. I, um, unfortunately, groups like the ACLU and other have raised mask wearing as some type of civil rights issue, I, which I don't think it is, but um, that's their view. Um, yeah, there needs to be a paradigm shift on how the, this country is going to be confronting this movement because with 2020 and, you know, depending on who wins that election, we could see another very big shot in the arm for Antifa. Some of the activities have slowed down a bit because it's been three years since 2016. But if Donald Trump is to win next year, oh, it's they're going to show up just possibly even more than they did before, and they'll have another huge recruitment tool. Um, Austin Roos of CFAM, uh, I'm an enormous admirer of your work. Thank you. Um, the, the, it, it seems to happen that, that, that Antifa comes where Proud Boys and uh, Patriot Prayer are. Um, in your research, ha have uh, Proud Boys been the instigator of any violence or simply showing up it causes it? These two movements slash groups are sort of mirrors of one another. Like when one shows up, the other has to show up. One wouldn't be able to recruit without the other. They both use each other for propaganda purposes. Um, in my experience, in the Portland area, what tends to happen is um, because Antifa and those who are sympathetic to them really outnumber, what tends to happen is they are usually the ones counter-protesting a right-wing group like uh, Patriot Prayer or Proud Boys. But in the past year or so, um, rec some of those leaders have recognized the um, propaganda appeal of creating footage of their members engaging in fights with um, Antifa Black Bloc and using that to increase their recognition and all that. So it's a problem that cuts both ways. Um, I've been particularly